So we're looking at Matthew chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 23 to 33 today. And uh, while you're turning there, like Mike said, uh, we need your help for Breakfast with Santa. Uh, we got 86 kids or 86 people signed up for our 10:30 session, so that's completely closed. Uh, get, still have some spots at the 9 a.m. session. We have a number of deliveries as well. So if you're able to help us on December 2nd, uh, that would be awesome. Sign up in the back, and we can really be uh, the light of Jesus in our community this Christmas. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 23 says this. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. We live in a very strange world. Uh, oftentimes we say, I have to see it to believe it. But we live in a world that is built upon things that we cannot see. If you were to look up into the sky, if you had incredible vision, you could see all different kinds of waves, radio waves, cell phone networks, Wi-Fi. There's all kinds of things that are moving about that we cannot see. We need Wi-Fi to get on the internet. We need a cellular network to send texts or make a phone call. We need radio waves to be able to listen to the radio in our car. We need satellite to be able to listen to satellite radio or watch television. So our world is built upon things that we can't see. And we just take for granted that they exist. But also, something deeper than that, we can't always trust what we see. Like, for example, check out this video of Tom Cruise. Yeah, I'll be right there, Steve. Hey, what's up, TikTok? Look, I do a lot of my own stunts, but I also do a lot of industrial cleanup, okay? It's important. So, uh, obviously, you keep your hands clean, but you need that exfoliating product to really cut through the grime, okay? Just another tip for you talkers, or the tip, to <clears throat> the TikTok tips. I I'm getting too old for that. I don't, <laughs> internet. Yep. So I, I bet you never knew that um, Tom Cruise did janitorial work and he did videos about that. Uh, he actually doesn't. That actually isn't Tom Cruise. It's a deep fake. Uh, that's not Tom Cruise. It was created using an actor, a different actor that kind of looked like him, and artificial intelligence that created that video uh, that you could, it's virtually undiscernible from Tom Cruise, a little bit younger version of Tom Cruise. But we can't always trust what we see. And, you know, you watch television and, you know, we see, you know, kind of an image that a producer wants us to see. You know, we see actors and actresses that are airbrushed that, like, look, you know, a certain way. We listen to, you watch stories that could never really happen in real life. Even things that we count as kind of, you know, real, like reality TV or news. 
Um, you know, there's an angle to all of those things. It's not just as, you know, as it is. It's as people want us to see. And so we can't always trust what we see. And so in our world, we're in this place where we're like, where can I find truth? What can I rely on? And historically, there's been kind of four different ways that people have discovered truth or things that they've relied on for truth. And so the first is that I can know truth by trusting what I've been told. I can know truth by trusting what I've been told. This has kind of been the, the majority viewpoint throughout history. You know, you think back, you know, ages where, you know, kind of the, the higher class, you know, the, the people, the royalty uh, had access to literacy. They could read and write and kind of the common people couldn't do those things. And so we see this kind of in the in the Catholic Church, and it's kind of a gross oversimplification. But you think about the Catholic Church and kind of the idea, you know, the medieval Catholic Church. It's like the you know the priests and the Pope. They had the the ability to understand God's word, and they had to communicate that to those who didn't have God's word. And so, if you were a believer, you had to trust those in authority over you. That truth is found by trusting those in authority, and you know it kind of. Sometimes people trust, you know, governmental authorities or scientific authorities. But it's this idea that I can know truth by trusting what I've been told. The second way that we people have found truth is I can know truth by observing what is true. This is kind of the heart of empiricism, the scientific method, that there's a world out there that has truth. And if I do a scientific study, if I observe it, then I can discover that truth. And so truth is out there, and I can learn about it. I can directly, kind of objectively observe that truth and, and come to, the, to a knowledge of the truth. The next is I can know, by, know truth by reasoning. This is kind of the heart of rationalism, that, that truth is inside of myself, that I can discern what is true, that God gave us logical minds, and so we can discern in, in our minds what is true and what is false. And this is the basis of a lot of philosophy. And then finally, I can know truth by what I feel. That what I feel creates reality for me. My son Paul oftentimes doesn't like to try things that are new. And the other night I was making pancakes for dinner. He loves pancakes, one of his favorite meals. So I was doing like breakfast for dinner. And so I made these pancakes, and I saw on the counter that we had these pears, and the pears were getting pretty ripe. They were going to go bad soon, so I thought I'd cut them up, and I cut them up, and I cooked them, put some spices on them, and made this, like, pear compote with sugar and, you know, all this stuff. And so I, I made the pancake, put the pancake on Paul's plate, put some of this pear compote on top of it, and he comes and he looks at it, and he's like, what is that? Now, now... Paul, he loves pancakes. He loves pears. It's one of his favorite foods. He never turns down pears. But he's like, what is this? And we described to him what it was. It was like pears and sugar, like things that he likes. And he's like, I, I don't want that. I don't want that. So I told him, I said, Paul, you don't have to eat it, but you do have to try it because I know that you're going to like this. And he, he fought me for, for quite some time, and I you know, finally got him to try it. I was like, okay, Paul, you just have to try this. So I take the fork, get a piece of the pancake, a little bit of the pear, put it in his mouth, and as soon as it hit his mouth, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, gross, disgusting, oh, I don't want this. His feeling cre created his reality. I know if he would have just eaten it, he would have loved it, would have been his favorite food. He loves pears. 
He loves sugar. He loves pancakes. I know he would have liked it. But his feeling, his beliefs created his reality. And sometimes that can happen. What we feel creates our truth. So when it comes to finding truth in our culture, I think for the most part, people have kind of given up on the first two approaches to finding truth. Like just trusting authority because we don't like to trust authority. We want to discover it our own way. And so we've kind of given up on that first approach, and, and oftentimes we've given up on that second approach, that, you know, empiricism, like I can observe what is true. Because, you know, we've been kind of lied to so many times, and we look at, like, even a scientific study, and it's like you can discern what, you know, the truth by your angle of how you come to that scientific study. You know, just go home and Google, like, are eggs healthy? You'll probably find dozens of studies that tell you that eggs are really healthy, and you'll find dozens of studies that tell you that eggs are really unhealthy and you shouldn't eat them at all. You know, it's something so basic, like just something that we eat, something that people have eaten for centuries, and it's like we don't know the truth about it. And so we can't find the truth out there. So most people, they get to this place where it's like we need to discern what is true in our own hearts. That what makes sense to me is true. That I can rationalize. I can discover the truth inside of myself. And so what makes sense to me is true or what I feel is true. And so I think most people in our culture kind of gravitate to those two. If it makes sense to me, it's true. If I feel it, it is true. And I think it's pretty close to the thinking of a group of people in this passage called the Sadducees. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably uh, heard the adage that the, uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they were sad, you see. And, of course, that, that's part of their story. We don't know a lot about the Sadducees, but we do know they didn't believe in the resurrection. And we think about, like, okay, how could you not believe in the resurrection? Well, they only had the Old Testament. And, of course, the, the resurrection is definitely in the Old Testament. And if you're discerning and look at the Old Testament, you can find it. But it wasn't quite as clear as, as it is today. Whereas, you know, we see in 1 Corinthians 15, and, and we, we see so many uh, clear statements of the resurrection in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it was a little bit, you know, harder to discern. So they threw out, you know, the idea of the resurrection in, in contrast to the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. So they believed that, you know, we all end with Sheol, which is the grave. Uh, so everyone just ceases to exist after they die. And so they also, you know, went further than that. They got rid of a lot of the supernatural parts of the Old Testament. Uh, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. And they had this kind of idea that God is outside of history, that he kind of, you know, set the world in motion and then just kind of let things go, kind of similar to the idea of deism that came much later, several, you know, several, hundred cent several centuries later. And so they believed in this God that was kind of far off, didn't, believe in much that was supernatural. They were very involved in politics and kind of the things that were happening in the temple. And they had this kind of belief of, you know, what we believe is right. You know, what we think is correct. Like, if it makes sense to me, it's true. That, that you know, the supernatural stuff, you know, the angels, resurrection, like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, what makes sense to us is this God that just kind of set things in motion, and I observe what I see, and people die, and, and go to the grave, and, and that's the end of the story. They also didn't believe in the uh, extra-biblical traditions that the Pharisees believed in. They were like, they thought of themselves as kind of being purists, that we only believe in the Old Testament scriptures. And so they believed this idea that like, if, 
if it makes sense to me, if it's logical, then it's true. And if I feel this way, then it's true. And so they come to Jesus with this question. It's not really a question. They're trying to really make Jesus look silly. They're trying to kind of describe the absurdity of believing in the resurrection. And they come to him with this idea of leveret marriage. Now, leveret marriage is something described in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And uh, this practice was something that was normative for Israel. It wasn't normative for, for any other cultures. But in that, in that culture, if a man died and he didn't have a child and he was married, it was the responsibility of his brother, if he had a brother, to take his wife, his widow, as his own. And, and there were two reasons for that. The number one reason was that, you know, if he didn't have a child, then his name would be kind of forgotten from the earth. And the idea was, like, if he had a child, the first child that his brother had with his widow would be reckoned to him, and so his name would never perish from the earth. And so his name would kind of live on. So that's the first reason. But the second reason was it was kind of a safeguard for women in that culture that didn't have a lot of opportunities that if they got into a place where, you know, they were childless and their husband passed away, they could become destitute. They could, you know, not have a way to provide for themselves. And so it was kind of a social safety net in a sense. And, and so we look in the scriptures and there's a couple instances where it happens in the scriptures, but it's not something that's very common. Not something that's normative. And this situation they, that they describe here, it would have been almost impossible for it to happen. Uh, theoretically, it could happen. But, uh, you know, for seven uh, husbands to die and for none of them to have children, it probably was not very likely to happen. But they bring this to Jesus to say, okay, like, let's say this happens. And there's seven men that are married to one woman because, you know, they just keep dying. Then you get to the resurrection and, like, what happens? Like, you know, whose wife is she? Like, are they just going to be fighting over this one woman when they get to heaven? And so they're trying to get to the, the, the people to see that, that the idea of the resurrection is just absurd. And I love Jesus' response. He just says, you are wrong. You are wrong. And then Jesus gives them two reasons. The first reason that he says they're wrong is because he says they don't know the Scriptures. This would have been especially insulting to them because, again, they thought of themselves as being like purists. Like they only believe the scriptures. Like we're experts in the scriptures. Those Pharisees, they had traditions and all these rules, but like we only believe the scriptures. And so this would have been especially insulting for them because they thought of themselves as being these purists. Jesus takes this, a very fundamental and very basic statement from the Old Testament and he uses it to, describe, to, to defend the idea of the resurrection. And, and that statement is, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God says this in Exodus chapter 2. He says it in a number of other places as well. But this is hundreds of years, decades after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. And so God says, I am the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus' argument is that God is not God of the dead. He is God of the living. So I am a pastor here at I Hope Community Church. And if I told somebody that, you know, it's like, okay, what do you do? I'm a pastor at I Hope Community Church. Okay, whatever. I'm going to watch my language or whatever they do. You know, but let's say I go down to Payne Avenue to the cemetery 
And I just preach at the cemetery. And I talk to the people at the grave sites. And then I told people, I'm the pastor at the grave site down there. I mean, I'd be committed. Because, you know, dead people, they don't talk. They don't listen. They don't do anything. And so for me to say I am the pastor of dead people, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And Jesus' argument is that for God to say I am the God of dead people, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so his argument is that when God says I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died decades before, I'm still their God. And they are, I still am, I'm still not done with their story. And so Jesus does something really incredible here. It says in the text that the people were astonished at what Jesus says because the Sadducees are coming and they're trying to make Jesus look silly. Like it's absurd to believe in the resurrection. And by using a very simple statement from the Old Testament, Jesus makes it absurd to not believe in the resurrection. Like how could God say, I am the God presently of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they're dead and gone? And so he says that God is the God of the living and not the dead. And so he shows the absurdity of not believing in the resurrection. And I think the the first reason that the Sadducees get mixed up is because they relied on what made sense most to them. And what they feel is right rather than what God has spoken and said to be true. And I think that we can do the same thing. Sometimes we can get mixed up with, you know, kind of our identity of how we think about ourselves. We can listen to what the world says we are rather than what God has spoken and declared for us to be. Sometimes we can do this with our plans. It's like, you know, we listen to what the world says is important rather than what God says is important. Sometimes we can do this, you know, by doing what's right in our own eyes, by having our own morality. And sometimes our good intentions can turn into deadly consequences. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said this. He said, because I'm a, I am a Christian, therefore every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's word and holy scripture is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the word of God. And as a Christian, I learn to know the holy scriptures in no other way than by hearing the word preached and by prayerful meditation. I think sometimes we can get mixed up and far from God's plan for our lives if we don't know God's Word. Now, we can do it if we know God's Word as well. I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, we know the good we ought to do and we don't do it, and that's kind of the heart of sin. It's like, you know, we know that God says one thing, and we're like, I'm going to go my own way. And so we can get mixed up that way. But we can also get mixed up without, by not knowing God's Word, by not being in God's Word, by being called, by being what you know, I like to refer to it as Instagram Christians. Instagram Christians use God's word but don't know God's word. Instagram Christians post God's word but aren't transformed by God's word. Don't understand what they're posting. Don't understand the context. Don't understand what God would call us to do. The Bible is different than any other book that we'd ever read. Because when we read the Bible, not only do we read the Bible, but the Bible reads us. The Bible reads us in that, you know, when we read the Bible, that's kind of the standard. And when we read the Bible, it's like, okay, what do I do need to do in response? What does this tell me about who God is? What does this tell me about who I am? What should my response be as I 
move forward in life. It's not just, oh, this is a nice book. Jesus did this. Jesus did, did that. It's supposed to read us. And as believers, we need to be in God's word. We need to know God's word if we're going to please him. The scripture says, I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. And if we don't know God's word, we can't please God. And it's not enough just to do Christian things. It's not enough to read devotionals. I love devotionals. Devotionals are great. It's not enough to just listen to sermons. It's not enough just to listen to Christian music. We need to be in God's Word. Let's say after the service, you come up to me and tell me about a new restaurant that you just tried out. You say, oh, I went to this place, and you know they had an incredible meal. I just love this place. They have reasonable prices. They have big portions. The service is great. It's just awesome. And I, and I said to you, that sounds like a great place. And then I go home, and I... I Google this place, and I see there's like a thousand reviews. And I go through and I read every last review for the restaurant. And then tomorrow I call you up and I say, hey, remember that restaurant you were telling me about? Can you tell me a little bit more about it? And you go on and you say, oh, yeah, they have a great special fish fry on Fridays and Tuesday. You know, they have spaghetti parm. And you go and you kind of describe all the specials. I say, great, thanks. And then Tuesday, I call you up. I say, hey, remember that restaurant that uh, you were telling me about? And you say, yeah, yeah, I remember that restaurant. I'm actually going there right now. Would you like to go there with me? I say, no, 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 don't, no, I've got other things I'm going to be doing. But I'll tell you what, after you go there, why don't you call me up and tell me how it was? That would be crazy, right? But that's what we do with God's Word sometimes. It's like we want to listen to other people talk about how great God is. We want to listen to other people talk about God's word, but we don't actually get in his word. Again, it's not wrong. It's great to, to have these other resources, the, the preaching of God's word, devotionals, but we need to be people of the word. Because I'll tell you, there's times where I get it wrong. There's times where I say things that are not right. And you need to read the Bible and say, okay, like, is this in line with what God has spoken? And you'll read devotionals. Some of those devotionals will be great and have things that are encouraging and, and bring out God's word. And some of those things will be wrong. And so as people of faith, we need to be people of the book, people who know God's word. That it's not just that we're listening to other people talk about God's word, listening to other people talk about their experience with God. But spending time with God and learning about God for ourselves. Because when we don't do that, we get mixed up really fast. And that's, I think, what the Sadducees do here. It's like they know God's word, but they're not immersed in his word. It's like they know the, the right things to say. They could post the right things on social media if they were alive today. But they're not being transformed by God's word. They don't know the scriptures as they should. So they get mixed up because they don't know God's word. But Jesus also says they don't know the power of God. They allowed logic to dictate the reality rather than what God has spoken. In their minds, marriage is incompatible with the resurrection. And they give this example, and they could probably other, give a whole host of other reasons that dead people don't get up from the grave. But they use marriage, and, and they use it as you know, this idea that's like it's absurd that seven you know, men would be married to one woman. 
And Jesus turns the tables and says, hey, well, in the resurrection, there's not going to be any marriage. There's not going to be any marriage. You don't have to worry about that. Now, and he says that we'll be like the angels. And remember, they don't believe in the angels. Right? So there's kind of a double thing there going on there. Just as an aside, you know, uh, you know, just kind of thinking about marriage and the resurrection. You know, maybe we're married to our spouse. We love our spouse. And we think like, oh, well, I'm not going to be married when I get to heaven. Uh, no, you won't be married. And, and sometimes that could be concerning to us. It's like, will I not know my spouse or will they not see my spouse? Well, there's a number of scriptures that indicate that we will know and love those uh, that, that we know on this earth. Um, and, you know, even though this institution called marriage will not be in heaven, I, I believe our love for our spouse will be even greater in heaven than it is today. And, and what exactly that's going to look like, we don't know. Jesus isn't talking about this. I mean, this, this kind of piques our curiosity, like what is he talking about? What's life going to be like in the resurrection? He doesn't tell us everything. That's not his intention. But we do know that God has incredibly great plans for us. We know that in heaven it's going to be much greater than it is on earth. And we know that, God, that our love for those around us is going to be amplified in heaven. And so, again, Jesus isn't talking that, that about these things to, you know, to give us kind of a theology of, of the resurrection. He's just trying to get these Sadducees to see that their logic doesn't dictate reality. Just because they see something is illogical doesn't mean that God cannot do it. They think marriage cannot work in the resurrection. And he and Jesus says that God is doing something that's so much bigger, beyond the scope of human understanding. We need to make sure that our logic doesn't limit God. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. Logic said that an old man from Ur him and his wife, way past childbearing years. Logic said there's no way that he's going to have a child, let alone become the father of many nations. Logic said that there's no way that Pharaoh is going to let the Israelites go from Egypt. And yet God made a way. After the Israelites left Egypt, Logic said there's no way that we're going to go through a sea. They're, they're, they're hemmed in by the Egyptians who's chasing after them, a sea on the other side, and God says, I'm going to split the sea. When they're in the wilderness, logic said that they were going to die because they didn't have anything to, to eat or drink in the desert. God said, I'm going to bring food down from heaven, manna down from heaven. Logic said that a young shepherd boy is going to get whooped by a ginormous human being who's been trained in warfare his entire life, who's covered in armor. And yet God brought the giant down. It logic said that people who sin, who've done evil, will perish in their sin, but God said, I have another way, and he sent Jesus to the cross. Logic said that Jesus was in the grave. The story was over. And yet God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus up from the grave. Logic said that the movement of Jesus was going to end shortly after his death and resurrection. A few group of his disciples are huddled up in an upper room, terrified about what has happened. And yet the Holy Spirit comes upon them and transforms them and they change the world. And we're here because of that. Let's not let logic dictate what God can do. What is logic telling you God can't do in your life today? What's logic telling you that God can't do in your life today? I'm not saying that we 
be foolish. I'm not saying we do like insane things. But we also need to make sure we don't limit God because God's ways are much higher than our ways. When we see something that's not logical, like how is God going to do this? God sees an opportunity to show himself faithful. God sees an opportunity to show himself true. When it seems like we have nowhere to turn, when our story is coming to an end, that's when God acts. That's when God moves. Because his ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In this passage, we see a kind of a negative example, an approach to spirituality that we should avoid, that we should not be ignorant of God's word, that we should not allow our logic to dictate our reality. But also there's a positive prescription here. Like what are we to do if we're to be people who are used by God? I think if we're going to be people that are used by God, if we're going to be a church that's faithful to God, we need to be people who know God's word and believe in God's power. We need to be people who know God's word and believe God's power. And we need both. Those things have to go together. Because if we know God's word but don't believe in God's power, the result is apathy. It's like we have all this head knowledge and, yeah, God is great, whatever. Like we, we, know, all the, we know all of these things, but we're apathetic. On the other hand, if we believe in God's power but we don't know God's word, that turns into kind of a theater that there's this emotionalism that like, oh, yeah, like I want to honor God, but we don't know how to honor God because we don't know his word. And so we need both of these things to go together. We need to know God's word, but we also need to believe in God's power. What if we did both? I I think our lives would be transformed. We knew God's word inside and out. If we hid God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin it against him. That we, yes, we did devotionals. Yes, we listened to messages. Yes, we read commentaries. We read Christian books. But also, we feasted on his word. I think it would change everything. And what if we believed in God's power? What if we believed that there's nothing that our God can't do? What if we believed that our logic can't limit our God? What if we believed the words of A.W. Tozer when he said this? Anything God has ever done, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that you're a God that's not defined by our logic and the limitations of our reasoning. Lord, we thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. When we say, see no way out, you see an opportunity to save us and show yourself faithful. Lord, as believers, I pray that we would be faithful in knowing you through your word, that we would be people who search the scriptures diligently so that we might have life, so that we might know how to please you, so that we might know how to live lives that are honoring to you. But may it not simply be a head knowledge. May it work into the recesses of our heart. And may we believe from the innermost parts of our being 
that you are powerful. And there's nothing that you cannot do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.